Okay, if you could stand for the reading of God's word. It's from uh, Luke. It's uh, 9, 51 and 52, and also 57 to 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we begin to meditate and expound on this beautiful passage of scripture that teaches us so much about what Jesus did for us and also the call um, to, to follow him and the cost of that following, um, I just wanted to open with prayer for a few items that we want to pray for. I, I, um, I want to pray for our sister Robin. She's here today. She asked me to pray for something for her and some other things. So would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to come to you this morning, and we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would indeed be the sort of followers of Christ that this scripture text describes. Lord, that um, our devotion to you would surpass devotion to anything else. God, I pray, Lord, that you would bless our sister Robin, who's just feeling a little bit anxious about receiving some those vaccinations, and I'm sure that some of other people are too. Pray, Lord, that you would just give her heart peace. Um, give us wisdom in the process of this confusing world that we live in right now. I pray, Lord, that we would have faith and not fear, and that we would trust you in all things. Um, God, I also want to ask that you would just be give a, give a special blessing on the various people that we get to meet with and talk to yesterday, even though it was very quickly, quick and it was kind of a shotgun type of thing. I pray, Lord, that they would read those Bibles that are in those bags that we gave them, those Gospels of John, and, and God, that they would take those invitations, that, that that bag wouldn't get thrown in their trunk and misplaced for a month, um, but God, that they would, they would come either here in person or listen online and hear the message of the Gospel of Christ, and that they would believe on him as their only life and Savior. God, I thank you, Lord, for this morning. Would you just bless us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, friends, uh, we finished, um, as we had said last week, on, uh, the, the, uh, on Jonah. And we're, uh, we're going into a series of sermons that kind of complements um, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, um, Easter Sunday. I just want to encourage you, I know we said this already, but grab some of these on your way out. Um, um, there's there's a whole bunch. I, we had mentioned to get some bags, but you can grab just some of these too if you have friends at work and you want to invite them. This is um, an East, uh, an invite to our Easter service, and it's got instructions if people want to do online or come here. Either way, so we hope that you can do that and be praying for people um, that might be coming out. But yeah, so so make make sure make sure that you do that, and also just be by way of reminder on Friday. I think we said this already, but this Friday is Good Friday. And uh, we're going to use it as a time for corporate prayer. So I hope that we can really just, um, as many of us as possible, can come out Friday night at 7 o'clock to pray. Okay? Um, we, would love, we would love to have you. I'm just going to put this over here. Well, um, today's Palm Sunday. Um, and it's meant to celebrate a very specific uh, event in the life and ministry of Jesus. And, and this event actually is reported. I'm sorry. I'm tripping over. Um, this event is recorded in every, in every single gospel um, in the New Testament. 
Okay? The Gospels, by the way, if you're kind of new to this language, um, there are two parts of the Bible. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. Um, there's two, those are the two major sections. The New Testament be begins with the birth and life of Christ. And there are four books in the New Testament. The first four books deal with his life. We call them the Gospels. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they detail um, the life of Christ um, in specific and in great detail, his teachings and everything that he accomplished. Um, they're, they're all somewhat similar, and they're all somewhat different. They all kind of look at the life of Christ from a different angle. So there are some stories that only Matthew will tell about, about Jesus. And then there are some stories that Matthew and Luke tell about Jesus, but Mark and John don't. Right? And then there are other stories that only John tells or only Luke tells. You see, so there's this wide variety of, of different accounts of the words of Christ and the works of Christ. But there are, there are a handful of events that all four of the Gospels talk about. So those pretty much, all four of them, by the way, the, the birth of Christ is not one. The, the, the Gospel of John doesn't even bring up the birth of Jesus. So we had, we had heard our um, sister Maria accurately say that one of the most important events, or the most important event that we celebrate in the life of the church, it's not Christmas, it's Easter. Um, and we can, we can make a biblical argument for that. It's because the Easter account is talked about more than the Christmas account. So there's a, there's a sense in which the Christian should make a bigger deal about Easter. And when I say a bigger deal about Easter, let me, let me just go even beyond that. Because Easter Sunday in the history of the church was never meant to be just one day a year. Every Sunday was meant to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, historically speaking, from the church's perspective, is Easter Sunday. So we, we have one day in which we, we sort of remember the whole week of Easter, and that's okay. But that's one of the reasons why you'll hear me every week say, today, today we're gathering to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Because every Sunday, that's why we gather on Sunday, the day that... Um, we, we have understood to be the resurrection of Christ. That's why we gather on this day. You see, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything and has changed everything. John chapter 12 records the events of Palm Sunday. We're looking at this event in particular. John chapter 12, not, not Luke chapter 9, which is the text we read. Luke chapter 9 points to Palm Sunday. We're going to spend most of our time expounding on Luke chapter 9, but it's pointing to Palm Sunday, which today we celebrate, which is all the Gospels talk about, um, and John chapter 12 in particular records it like this. It says in verse 12 of John chapter 12, the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Um, I'm going to distract us for one second because I'm getting distracted. Mike, can you mute this just for a second? Is that okay? Thank you. I keep stepping on this, and it's bothering me. <laughs> so I'm going to move it to this side. You can unmute that now. Better for me, doesn't make a difference for you. Um, okay. Palm Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday because this great crowd, they were dumping palm leaves on the ground as a symbol of Jesus' kind of like royal entry. They were considering him as king, much, much like we, we would throw flower petals or for royalty, we would pave the road with something so they're not walking on the dirt. It's a symbol that they were acknowledging that Jesus is king. So, uh, more accurately, many have called this the triumphal entry. Have you heard this language? Palm Sunday is also referred to the triumphal entry of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So that's what, what historically it's been referred to as as well. And it's basically the account of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey, the other Gospels tell us this, and being received as king with much adulation. The crowds screaming out, Hosanna, which means save us now. They were acknowledging Christ as the Messiah. And by the way, before we're, we're too um, impressed with this crowd, it's the same crowd that just um, 
just um, a little bit later after this event are calling for him to be crucified. What on earth happens? Where the same crowd is asking Jesus to save them but then calling for his head. Isn't it funny how quickly we can turn on a dime against our God when he doesn't do what we want him to do? Right? That's another message for another time. But it's, So this is an account of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey being received with much adulation. And as I said, all the Gospels talk about this. So it's a spotlight onto the importance of this event. If all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all repeating this account, we know how important this account is. There's, a, there's only a handful of events where all four Gospels talk about it. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the empty tomb, the ascension into heaven. There are a handful of, the feeding of the 5,000, by the way, that's in all four Gospels. There's a handful of events, works and, words and works of Jesus that are in all, all four Gospels. And it points a spotlight onto their importance that Scripture is giving to them, okay? But why is it so important? It seems like kind of like a minor event. Jesus came in on a donkey to Jerusalem. Big deal, right? The text I chose today, I think, gives us a clue as to why Christ coming into Jerusalem is so important. Our text, did you notice it? It says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, this is much before Jesus actually went into Jerusalem, but there was a point in Jesus' ministry where he, he resolutely fixed his gaze on Jerusalem. In other words, what this text is saying is his mission, the reason that Jesus is even doing ministry, is in Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. That's why he's doing miracles. That's why he's teaching, because there's a goal, and that goal is in Jerusalem. So the Bible says he fixes his face to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Other English translations say it just like that, that he set his face to go out to this city. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, is the realization of his fixed determination to go to Jerusalem. So what we see, in other words, in John chapter 12 is the realization of his resolve to enter Jerusalem. You follow? But why? Why was going there so important? And our text explains it, if you might have caught this. Our text says the reason he set his face to Jerusalem was because that the day was drawing near for him to be received up. Did you see that sentence? That's why he was resolute. That's why he was fixed to go to Jerusalem. They didn't have good gyros there. Right? That's not why he was headed to Jerusalem for some, from, from some good matzo ball soup or something. Right? Like... We might fix our face to Fall River to go down to Sam's Bakery. But Jesus was fixing his face to Jerusalem, by the way, and not even for something maybe even more important than a good rap, to maybe heal a person of some disease or teach a beautiful lesson on discipleship. You see, that wasn't even his person in entering to Jerusalem as well because the text explains he was on his way to Jerusalem he set his face towards that city so that he would be raised up. So this morning I want to talk about that resolve and his being received up. And I also want to talk about likewise God's call for us to set our face as well to Jerusalem to be raised up with him. You see, that's what our text teaches. Jesus resolutes. Jesus resolutes. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I can't help but think that this is a reflection or maybe even a direct fulfillment of a promise made hundreds of years prior by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, where it says, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Jesus Christ, in his fixed determination to head to Jerusalem, knew, based on the promise of God, that he would not be disgraced. He would not be put to shame. In other words, there is a purpose of victory in Jerusalem for him. You see? He would win there. He would overcome there. 
I would not be put to shame. Jesus' primary mission is in Jerusalem. And our text tells us quite plainly what that mission is. We said it already, to be received up. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus was received up? Jesus set his face like a flint to Jerusalem, very simply to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. That all of that is built into this phrase to be received up. Received up on a cross, received up in resurrection, and received up in heaven. There's an account in the book of Acts where it talks about Jesus is interacting with the the apostles after he's resurrected from the dead, and he ascends to heaven. We'll get to that in a moment. But this is what's being referred to. Jesus is going to Jerusalem so that he can be received up on the cross, from the grave, and into heaven. Does it make sense? You follow me? That's his purpose. That's why God became a man, took on flesh, and was made like us. Not to give us good advice about how to live life, but so that he would be raised up on a cross, raised up out of the dead, out of a tomb, and then ascending into heaven. You know, there's, there's, um, there's another part of Holy Week that oftentimes the church doesn't celebrate that in the history of the church was almost more important than even Easter, and that is Ascension Day, right? Um, but that one kind of has gotten lost over history. Anyway, Jerusalem would be the place that would begin this process where Jesus would be crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And some people have called this Jesus' exodus. You know, in the Old Testament, when Moses delivered the children out of Egypt from slavery, what was that called? The exodus. So some people call this Jesus' exodus. And why? Because in his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, he exits his people out of the slavery of sin and into eternal life. You see, friends, everything in the Old Testament has a deeper meaning than what we think. The book of Exodus is not just about one guy rescuing a bunch of slaves from Egypt. It's pointing to a bigger problem, a greater slavery. And Jesus is the better Moses. Got it? So here is Jesus' exodus. In Luke chapter 9, the same chapter, we didn't read this part. It's just a little bit before it. If you want to go home, you can read this. There's There's another event where Jesus is on top of this mountain. And he brings three of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says that they get a window into his glory. And that he, he shone with a great light. Some, some people call this the Mount of Transfiguration. And, he, and Peter, James, and John see his glory. And two guys show up and start talking to him. Moses and Elijah, Old Testament prophets that have been long dead. Right? And this is what it says in Luke 9. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. You see? This is the significance of Christ entering into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Because it is, it is bringing to fulfillment the, his need to depart to be risen up. It was his destiny to be risen up. It was the purpose of his birth. And we know that because all of the scriptures it tells us, for example, in Revelation chapter 13, 8, look, the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundations of the world. In other words, it was always part of God's plan, even before there even was the inexistence, one little speck of dust. God knew in his divine foreknowledge, he knows everything beforehand, that when he created us, we would fall into sin and he would need to ordain his son to come and rescue us. Salvation was always the plan of God. Even before anything existed. Doesn't that blow your mind? Wow. Behold the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29 says this, look, this is John the Baptist the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It was Jesus' destiny. So he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem to accomplish his purpose. Luke chapter 2. It says that, you remember the man Simeon? 
around the time of the birth of Christ. He, the Bible says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Let's read it. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon took him, Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, so Jesus, obviously a little boy, he took him in his arms. I don't imagine he was lifting adult Jesus, right? So Simeon took him, Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised long ago, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What he's saying is, he knew that the promise of, of God hundreds, thousands of years prior in the scriptures was to send a deliverer to raise him up to die for his sin. And now he was holding him in his arms. So Jesus set his face like a flint to Jerusalem because that was his purpose. His purpose was to die, and not just to die, but to die for sinners. And not just to die for sinners, but to conquer death and come out of the grave to save sinners. That's you and me. So he set his face like a flint. For love, he did this. See, why did Jesus do this? Why did he set his face like a flint? Because he loved the Father, and he loved doing his will, and he loved you and me. The, the twin towers of Christ's motivation. Out of love for the Father and love for his creation, he did this. He set his face like a flint for love's sake and being risen up at his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He was crucified to satisfy the justice of God for sin. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. The wages of sin is death. See, God is a holy God, and his righteousness for sin needs to be satisfied. And it will either be satisfied in our eternal death or Jesus' death. See? So come to him, friend. Put your faith and trust in him. Take your death and put it on him so that you can have his life. Amen? Amen. He was crucified. And in being risen up, right, it means that he was crucified because he was pierced for our transgressions. But also in his being risen up, it refers to his resurrection. To reverse the curse of sin, which is death or separation from God and his love. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, a letter written in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, it says, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. He's referring to the resurrection of Christ and his ascension. He has appeared in heaven, in other words. Because he has appeared for as our Savior, Christ Jesus, he has destroyed death, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we know through the light, in other words, we know because he is risen that that's where we get eternal life and not from some other religious guru and not from our own good works. But because Jesus is alive, we know the light is put on him and we need to receive him by faith. So he was risen up to be crucified, risen up to be resurrected, risen up in his ascension to heaven. When he resurrected the, from, from the dead, the Bible says that he ascends to heaven. Why is this so important? Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 tells us, because Jesus went to heaven after his resurrection, it guarantees that a better Jerusalem will return with him. You see, the Bible teaches all over the place that Christ went to heaven as king as conquering king. And in that, he is now Lord of all. Lord of the universe, if you will. Lord of his church. So crowned with glory, when he returns, he replaces the old Jerusalem with a new Jerusalem. A new one that has no sin in it. A new one that cannot be corrupted because death is no more. You see, friends? He went to the old Jerusalem to know pain and death so that he could bring a new one. Isn't that great news? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. You know what this is? Eternal life. This is the presence of God on earth. 
See, we think of heaven, don't we think of heaven like as out there, some kind of fantastic, nebulous, kind of maybe a little cloudy, light and bright and stuff. The, the, the Bible says that heaven is a recreated earth that does not perish, that has the presence, direct presence of God. It's very earthy, the heaven that we're, we're going to. The Bible describes heaven as having animals. In other words, heaven is what the earth was intended to be when God first created it. Isn't that great news? For the sake of love, he set his face. He determined, he resolved, no matter what the cost, to take on the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? So he would pass through the old Jerusalem, a place that would be a source of extreme pain and rejection and death so that he could bring us a new one, a new Jerusalem. Isn't that good news, friends? A place of perfect love between God's people and their maker. That's, if you're saved, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's what you're called to, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's your mission. And that's, by the way, our call as disciples. Like Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, he was really looking through the old Jerusalem to the new one. Does that make sense? He was, he was looking through it because there was something better beyond it. And friend, in this, it gives us the purpose and mission of our lives. That we need to see through, like, so we, oh, there's so many distractions. So many little, I want to get this condo in this state. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to have this, you know, what do they call those things with the, when, you, when you travel and you have like a share? Time. A time, oh, share, we have a time share, right? Oh, I would love to have that time share. And hey, let's travel to all these different places. And friends, I'm not saying that God says we can't travel or vacation or own homes. What I am saying, though, is our greater desire, our greater purpose is through that stuff. It's beyond it. We have a mission that we need to share in the mission of Christ. His call is our call. That anyone, anyone, by the way, that would even want to be saved to begin with needs to go through this cauldron. A choice needs to be made. As Jesus set his face, friends, so must you and I. It's a choice that we need to make to follow Jesus. Jesus was resolute and so must his disciples be. That was Jesus resolute. That was Palm Sunday. He fixed his face like a flint to head to Jerusalem to be risen up for us, and so must we. So must we be resolute. So must we set our face on him, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Amen. It's a choice that we need to make to follow Jesus, even if you don't know him yet. And if you do know him yet, it's a choice that you need to make every single day to resolutely fix your face on him as he fixed it on you for love's sake. We too must set our face like a flint to follow the Lord. I don't think it's an accident that right after we're told that Jesus was determined to head down to Jerusalem and be risen up, that it, it immediately goes into, did you know this? It immediately goes into the call to follow him. And the excuses, the varied excuses that people made not to. You see, Jesus was set like a flint to Jerusalem. The, the implication is, follow me there. And don't make excuses. It's better there. It doesn't seem like it's better because there's a cross there. And no one likes a cross. But there's something through the cross. Through the old Jerusalem is a new one. Does that make sense? So it's not an accident that right after Jesus says, I am determined to head to Jerusalem to be risen up, now come and follow me for the same. You see? It's as, it's as if Jesus is saying that the way to life, your life, real life, is through your death. Something's got to die. If you would be a Christian friend, you must likewise pass through the same sort of death. Jesus tells us three things 
that we should not trade in before. I'm going to talk about these real quick with you, okay? There are three things that these three different people traded for Jesus. They wanted something else more than him. And this is our temptation too. So Jesus tells us three things that we shouldn't trade him for. When he addresses these three sort of would-be disciples, he's addressing all of us as well. And those three things are comfort, family, and options. Let me explain to you this. He says, don't trade me for comfort, don't trade me for family, and don't trade me for options. Let's look at comfort first. Here's this first potential follower of Christ, this first potential Christian. He says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, animals have homes. I don't even have that. It's almost as if Jesus, it seems as if he's trying to talk them out of following him, but he's not. He's just telling them. He's warning them. He's, this is what it involves. He's not trying to scare them away. He's trying to be truthful. See, so often, I think, in our, in our world, in our day, uh, where the church really tries to make, make Christianity really simple and easy so that more people will come and stay. But the reality is, the kind of Christianity that Jesus talks about requires that you and I die. Our will, our per the, the, the purpose that we had prior. And I'll explain that in a second. It sounds, you're saying, Kyle, you're going to give stuff up to be saved? Isn't that work salvation? No, it's not. And let me tell you why. Hold on. Good question. <laughs> Jesus is saying, would you still follow me if it meant prioritizing him over comfort? Would you still follow me if it meant that you didn't have a home? Friends, to be saved requires this. To be saved from sin requires this. And that's not earning your salvation by giving up your comfort. I'm not saying that we earn God's favor by giving stuff up. What I think Jesus is saying here is that in this, the reason we give up home is because we are recognizing that he is our home. And our home is not our home. You see, if he's not our home and our home is our home, then he's not our God. Our home is our God. So to truly come to Christ in saving faith almost requires that the fruit of that would be that you're willing to sacrifice what is most precious to you. And if you're not, it just proves that you don't get it. You see? That there's still another God in your life. And you haven't truly believed that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Because if you won't follow him because of you want this comfortable house then it shows that you don't see him truly as savior that house is your savior does that make sense so this isn't work salvation it's a simple do you believe that he's your savior or is something else right it's recognizing that our homes we make without jesus aren't comfortable we try to make them comfortable we get silly posturepedic beds and we go down to lazy boys and buy these awesome couches but in a few years you know they're they're dipping in where our big butts have been sitting for too long it's where we it's where we end up fighting fighting with each other and are jealous and watch filthy things on television and we enter in for all these so we, we we realize that we bring our sin into our homes we need the better home the better comfort which is christ right friends they can't save us and they can only comfort us for so long. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I, can, uh, I can't offer you the comfort of this life, but I can for the next. And that's really what we're after, isn't it? We must look to him as our only comfort, not this world. That's what this means. Same thing with family. Um, the second potential Christian asks if he can go bury his father before he follows Jesus. And Jesus basically says, no, you can't. Follow me. <laughs> Couldn't he just beat around the bush a little? You know, like, well, you know, just come, follow me a little while. I'll get to the answering that question later. He just, he doesn't beat around the bush. He just says, no, you got to follow me. Why? Why is he so tough? By the way, you know, there's a story in the Old Testament where Elisha wants to follow Elijah. And he says the same thing. Did you know that? He says, let me go say bye to my family first. And what does Elijah say? He says, okay, 
And the seagull says bye, and he comes back. What the heck's going on? Why is Jesus harder? Because Elijah, Elijah, Elijah is not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. You see, Elijah is not the, the, the one that Elisha should be surrendering all to and worshiping. And Jesus is that person. Jesus here is acknowledging that the problem of, of sin is one of misplaced devotion. Our first devotion is not to mom and dad. It's to Jesus Christ. And sometimes, if that's true, what that's going to mean, it's going to mean, it's going to look as if we, we don't love mom and dad. How are you going to move to Iraq with your grandson and, and granddaughter away from your grandparents and not have them feel as if they're not important? Well, they are important to you, right? But they're not your Lord. So you do it, right? We worship and serve the creature over the creator, though, don't we? But friends, God is our father before our mom or our dad is, you see? It is his love and affection and approval that we need. So we need to set our, you see, friends, when we're children, we desperately want mom and dad to approve of us, to like the picture that we made, to be impressed by the dance that we made up. We are, we are feeding off of their affirmation constantly. What Jesus is saying here is that you don't need that affirmation. They're not your God. They're not Father God. I am. You need that from him. And isn't that liberating? Because some of us have had mom and, moms and dads that weren't there for us and were incredibly abusive. And to this day, you're insecure about it. But you don't need to be anymore. You, you know why? Because there's a better father Amen. that moved heaven and earth and set his face like a flint to Jerusalem to save you because he loves you. Amen. Isn't that great news? So Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me, because I'm the better father. I'm the father that you've been looking for your whole life and never had. But a Christian is also someone who doesn't trade Jesus for options. Okay, let me explain to you what I mean. That's what, what this means by he set his face like a flint. In other words, if I set my face like a flint to that clock and I start walking towards it, it means I am eliminating every other object as a point of interest. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm eliminating options. I'm not walking towards the clock and being like, oh, a bright lamp, a butterfly. <laughs> right? I am deciding that nothing else matters. That matters. Right? I'm eliminating options. It's the death to options. It's not being distracted by other things along the path that come our way. And the reason for it is because Jesus isn't on it. And if Jesus isn't on the path, I don't want that path. Right? The Christian is someone that sets his face for the love of Jesus to the new Jerusalem. The same thing that motivated Jesus to fix his face to Jerusalem is the same thing that motivates us to fix our face to him. Love. He loves us, so he went to Jerusalem. We love him, so we head there too. See? So it means that we're not setting our face to worldly success, to esteem, to power, to political power, or otherwise. We're not setting our face to comfort. We're not simply taking Jesus with us along for the ride because he's helping us get to what we're actually fixing our face on. See what I mean? So I'm fixing my face on marriage, and Jesus is just sort of there to help me pull it off. Right? No, my, I'm fixed, my, my face is fixed to him. And friends, that is the source of your peace, of your joy. You want to know why? Because the Bible promises, if you seek me, you'll find me. You always get him. And you won't be disappointed. So we will not trade Jesus for options. It would be like seeing Jesus as the best man instead of the groom. What, is a, what does the best man do? Best man tries to focus the bride's attention on the groom. Right? My job is to promote the marriage of the bride and groom. Right? You see, Jesus isn't the best man. He's the groom. Everything else under heaven should be the best man trees and birds and work 
and comfort, all of this should point to the fact that it's God that loves us. Instead of loving him for it, we love those things instead of him. You see? Jesus isn't the best man. He's the groom. He's the servant. Uh, so, so his creation is the servant of the union of Christ and his people. Everything under heaven's sun is meant to promote your love for Jesus, not distract you from it. And what sin does is it distracts us from it. So we, we want houses and money and vacations and love and romance, all these things, which are wonderful things, things that God created, but we use God to get them rather than use them to get God. You see? Or, you, or, or see God in them, I should say. But in sin, we, so, we, so we trade the truth about God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature over the creator, the best man over the groom, right? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Creation is meant to promote the glory of God, yet in sin we promote it to God's place instead. So, friends, a Christian is one that when he puts his hand to the plow, doesn't look back. He's got a purpose. You know, when you're plowing a field and you want a straight line, you have an end in sight, crops. So if you're looking all around and, oh, look at that pretty brook, and I want to go do something else, it's just not going to happen. You've got to be focused. The plowman looks forward. The plowman has a purpose. The plowman has an end in sight. And he doesn't mind that he's missing out on other stuff that's happening around him because there's a greater end that he doesn't want to miss out on. Amen. And that greater end, in this analogy, is Jesus. He's not worth trading for options. Mm -hmm. The Christian knows this and is motivated by his love for Jesus and likewise sets his face like a flint. Like Jesus set his face to Jerusalem for love's sake, the Christian sets his face to that eternal union and will not trade it for anything. Oh, friends, what you looking at? What is your face set like a flint to? Can I invite you to take it off this life and put it on the giver of life, Jesus Christ. He's better. He sells all his possessions to buy the field, which is concealing a priceless treasure. I'm willing to get rid of everything that I have for this field because what's in this field is worth more than everything that I have. Right? And I know it. So my life is not what's important. My eternal life is. Mm -hmm. So that means I can sacrifice it. I can serve you. I can be generous with my money. I don't have to hate your guts when you tick me off. I can forgive you. Right? Isn't that great? For love's sake, to keep our eyes fixed forward even when so many around us tempt us to be distracted by work or pleasure for love's sake. When I was a, um, a boy, let me just close with this. I loved this movie called Crocodile Dundee. You ever see it? You ever see Crocodile Dundee? If you're like 20-something or younger, you might even not know what that is. It's really funny. It's a funny movie. But I love that movie, Crocodile Dundee. It's about... Um, this wealthy writer, her name's Sue Charlton, and she's a writer for this really big paper, a newspaper, I forget, in New York City, and it's owned by her father, so she's wealthy and she's a good writer. And she's tasked with going to Australia, the outback, to write a story about this bushman who apparently escaped death after being bitten in half by a crocodile. You know who that is? Mick Dundee, Crocodile Dundee. So she goes there to meet this man, to um, tell the story of his survivalism and his lifestyle, basically. Um, and she has many adventures with him in the outback. Eventually, though, she wants to take him back to New York City to sort of um, introduce him to the people that are going to be reading about him in her article. So he follows her to New York City, and they fall in love. Right? Unlikely. This bushman doesn't have two pennies to rub together, but can snap a crocodile's neck. And this woman that lives in New York City um, 
with tons of money, very proper, right? Very well-dressed. They fall in love. But she's under pressure because she's not the right guy for him. Another rich guy is the right guy for her, right? So she finds herself under pressure. She gets engaged to some rich jerk. Um, and at the end, she realizes, I shouldn't be marrying him. I should be marrying Nick. This is right. This is typical love story stuff, right? Um, but she she's engaged, so he decides, I'm going to leave. And the hotel staff tells him as he's leaving, he says, if you're looking for adventure, there's a subway down there. Remember this? This is the very end of the movie. So he, he takes off. And then just a few minutes later, she shows up in a limo, all in a tizzy. Where is he? Trying to find him. And the guy at the hotel, he's, if you're looking for Mick, he's, he went to look for adventure at the subway. She's like, oh, no. He's gone. So she starts walking towards the subway, right? Kind of maybe a little fast. And then that, and then that kind of walk starts picking up into a speed walk, into a brisk walk. She's starting to realize if he leaves, I may never see him again. So, so she starts walking like the speed walk thing, right? But you know, she's proper, she's rich, she's in a dress and she's got heels on. So then she's like, uh-oh, you know what? This, he's gonna get away. So she flips her shoes off, barefoot, hoofs it, runs, full out sprint to the subway, running now to find him. She sets her face like a flint. Nothing's more important. She's undignified. Her feet are dirty, and it doesn't matter. Because, friends, when we sacrifice this life for the one we love in the next, it doesn't matter. He's better. She enters. She's, she's sweating now, right? And she's all dirty. She enters into this crowded subway, and she can't move. She can't get through this crowded subway. But off, way off in the distance, she sees his hat. She knows it's him. So she, she screams out to this guy, this other guy, that's got a construction hat on, I need to talk to the guy in the black hat. And he's like, me? You talking to me? So then he, he's far away. He's far away, too. So he's got to get someone else. So he finds some other guy. Hey, lady needs to talk to the guy in the black hat. And it's like, that guy? Yeah, that guy. Hey, buddy, lady needs to talk to you in the black hat. What does she want? <laughs> I don't know. What does she want? I don't know. What do you want? Tell him not to leave. I'm not marrying Richard. <laughs> He's not marrying Richard. Don't leave. <laughs> He's not marrying Richard. Don't leave. Why? <sighs> I don't know. Why? Why? I love you. She loves you. <laughs> she loves you. He's got a big smile if he hears it. I love you. I love you. The message of love passes through the crowd. He doesn't hear it directly from her. It passes through people. Right? Friends, everything the trees and the birds and the bees should be crying out to us. I love you. God loves us. Everyone. He loves you. He's using me right now. I'm like that, that, that guy with the, the, the hat. Uh, he loves you. He's speaking to us, all of us, one and all, through creation, through everything, through the water and the birds and the trees and the chimpanzees and through people like me. He loves you. Don't leave. Love him back. The trees cry out 
The flowers cry out. The heavens cry out. Your family, everything cries out. The love of God. Why do you love people? Why do you get romantic and want to marry them? Because there's an echo of the love of God in that. What you really want is his love, right? It's not the messenger's love that you want. You didn't jump into the arms of the construction worker. He was just the messenger. You see? Your love for man is just an echo of God's love for you. So, so then, okay, he hears the message, but there's this thick crowd. She couldn't walk through, so he can't either. So you know what he does? He, he grabs something above his head, lifts himself up, sees her, and he starts walking on people's heads to get to her. You want to know why he does this? Because his face was like a flint. It didn't matter what was around him. Those things weren't going to prevent him from getting to the one he loved. They weren't more important. So let the dead bury the dead. Let the foxes have the holes because there's a better home. You see? Friends, set your face like a flint and follow Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, the divine love that you were created to love in return. So we need to die. We have a misplaced affection, and that misplaced affection needs to be crucified, put on Christ. Lose your life for Christ's sake, and you'll find it. King Jesus will set his face, and has set his face like a flint to save you. He entered Jerusalem and was received up. He was crucified, risen, and ascend, ascended to heaven to rescue you should you receive him simply by faith. Would you do that this morning, friends? I hope that you will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask you for your help this morning, that we would set our face like a flint to you. God, um, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ yet, oh, friends, would you stop, put down the thing that you've been worshiping and going after and look to Christ who was risen up on a cross to save you from your sin resurrected from the dead to reconcile you with God and give you eternal life ascended to heaven so that he could bring heaven to you say yes don't leave I love you Pray with me. God, save me. I'm a sinner. I've been far from you. I've loved everything but you. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and was risen for my life. Oh, friend, I want to rejoice with you. Share that with me if this is your moment. And God, for the rest of us who know you, we pray, Lord, every day that we would redirect our affection and our devotion to Jesus Christ and remember you our greatest love. In Jesus' name.